This episode is sponsored by Ember. One of the challenges of being me is that I savor every sip of my coffee. This means my coffee gets cold. And while I could drink my coffee faster, you and I both know we don't drink coffee simply for the caffeine of it. We want the aroma and the flavor to last. I'm excited to offer my listeners 10% off their order of an Ember Smart Mug on Ember.com with the code COFFEEPOD. I look forward to sharing my experience of Ember with you in the next few episodes, so stay tuned. Listening to the Coffee Podcast. This is the Coffee Science Series. Coffee Science and Research. I don't know if I subscribe to the metaphor of soft or hard sciences. I think it comes dangerously close to stigmatizing non-hard sciences, and while that may not be helpful to you right away, you may soon join me in this opinion, but maybe not. Sure, different sciences are different by definition, but at their cores I find the same critical element, research. It is not enough to wonder in the world of science. We must explore our wonderings, and how we explore those wonderings and what conclusions we draw from our observations matter immensely, not to mention how we present those conclusions. Dr. Jennifer Ferreira is a geographer, a social scientist, and began her work looking at labor markets and economic development. She is currently Coventry University's principal investigator, aka lead researcher, for the Cafe Spaces Project, which focuses on the development of the cafe industry. She will introduce us to the topic of research for the Coffee Science Series. And I first started to look at sort of the different roles that coffee shops had in different cities and different places, and kind of the different community roles they could take. And that led me to then do some research about looking at how the industry itself was growing. Because I was kind of doing the research about this at the time when coffee shops were expanding quite rapidly, particularly here in the UK and in other countries too. Mm. And that's just led on to a number of different kind of research avenues from looking at sustainability to looking at, you know, what consumers do and how they behave. In your, from your perspective, what is research? How how would we boil it down? uh, And what is the point of it. For me, I mean, it's about finding out about the world, finding out about how places work, about how people interact with the places they live. I think research is, is quite a personal thing because it's about people get motivated to research different things about what they want to find out about. For me, it's about finding out about places and people and, and how you know they make the world work, really. In your line of work in the social sciences, is there the idea of sort of having a hypothesis and and testing it, or is there a different uh, maybe angle or, or way that that goes that we go about doing that? Actually, that's a really interesting question because again, it, it depends. There are so many different approaches you can take in research. So I currently work in a, in a business school, so I have you know working in a business and management environment, and there are lots of scholars and, and academics who do like to have hypotheses and they like to test them. Um, it's not the kind of uh, research I do. I tend to have my 
my work is based around research questions and I go about trying to answer those using a number of different methodologies rather than setting out to have a, a hypothesis that I then test with particular models or anything like that. Could you give us an example? What's the difference between, say, like a hypothesis and then questions? Like, what would be the difference? It's kind of hard to differentiate that in my mind. Yeah, so I guess if you have a hypothesis, you have an idea about something you want to test. You have an idea about something that is happening in the world. So say, for example, you have a hypothesis that COVID-19 has had a negative impact on coffee shops. That's your hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And you go out and test that and you'd go and look at, you know, the the income from coffee shops, you could, uh, and you go and look at the number of COVID-19 cases, and you could go and try and, and, and test that hypothesis. My approach would be to ask what impact has COVID-19 had on coffee shops? And that way I would go and look at a number of different elements to try and explore the different elements of what was going on there rather than focusing on perhaps one specific element. Um, that said, mm. some, some academics will have a number of hypotheses to try and get you know the more nuanced answers to what they're looking at. What would you say are the elements of good research in your niche of research? The key part really is having a good solid methodology for what you want to do. So you need to have a clear set of research questions. What exactly do you want to find out? Obviously, there are a large kind of big questions of what's happening in the coffee industry. But to a good piece of research, you need to think about the really specific things you want to find out. For example, we were doing a piece of research recently that wanted to look at sustainability risks in coffee supply chains. We decided to look at one specific coffee supply chain so we could try and look at more specific elements of what was going on. And then within that, we broke things down to look at you know, a research question that focused on what was happening at one end of the supply chain and then a, another question that looked at the other end. Um, so trying to break down some of these issues and topics into more manageable chunks. Hmm. Uh, and then within that, you can work out what methods you're going to use. Now, again, every academic will have their preferred uh, methods of ways of doing things. If you talk to biologists and chemists, they're going to have a different set of what they class as good research methods to what I would mm -hmm. use, which would be more qualitative, talking to people, doing surveys, going out in the field and doing participatory research. If I was to ask the the reverse question, you, you know, what are clues to bad research? Would it be just the flip side of bad methodology? And what would that look like? Well, I mean, yeah, partly if, if they don't really tell you about how they collected data, um, about where they got their information, what are their source of information, then that's a clue that the research is not, you know, very robust. But also if they're making large generalizations, if they're claiming to have found certain things but aren't really backing it up with evidence and also citing other research that's gone on, that's usually an indication that it's, it's not a very solid piece of research. This question mostly comes out of the fact that the media can publish all kinds of things, right? Um, sure. And sometimes the media interprets research without considering the quality of that method. Yeah. Consider I'm a coffee professional somewhere and something comes out in the news. It's about some social science discovery. How would I know or begin to know what to look for? Say something like even in a media publication, what would be the steps for me to verify, oh, this is reliable before I go share it with somebody else? If you see something in the media and they give you a statistic, usually they would have to reference where that comes from somewhere. And if they're not, then that's already an indication that perhaps it's not reliable. But often a good publication mm -hmm. will say, you know, this has been taken out of, you know, it relates to a particular journal article. Often, you know, they will provide a link or, or they'll mention the academic involved or the research center or, you know, whatever organization has produced this piece of information. There'll be some kind of link for you to then go and find where 
where this will have come from. And as academics and as scientists, our job is to get the findings out to the public or to the funding organisations. So that information mm-hmm. should be there somewhere else in a fuller form. If it's been published in a journal article, that journal article in some form should be there. Um, that academic will have a, or that organisation will have a web page which should have some information about that research sh- somewhere where people can go and find out about what's going on. So I think that's one of the, mm-hmm. the first step is to find out, okay, where's this information coming from? Is there a, an academic organisation that you can find out more about what they're doing and where the information came from? I've noticed a good deal of misinformation in the days that we're living. And it's always been a wonder to me how a reader might take it upon themselves to do a little extra legwork before they share something, especially because sometimes research leads to people, in this case, coffee professionals making decisions based on what they read in the paper, thinking, you know, maybe we saw a statistic and it sounded good. And so we went off that and maybe it's actually not um, reliable. It can be intimidating, you know, not having the background in research to start to think, how do I truth test this thing? Sure. The reason for that question is really to see if we can get comfortable, just all of us, with following the breadcrumbs and, oh, no, that looks like it was a large sample size and it looks like there were a lot of data points that look reliable or what have you. What does it mean that correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation? Let's talk a little bit about cause and effect. What have been your observations with cause and effect in your field? It points to the kind of different research types that can happen. So in a lot of my research, Mm -hmm. I'm not looking for a particular causal relationship, although sometimes these things do come up. So if you're collecting a lot Mm -hmm. of quantitative data and you've got data sets, for example, about the amount of money being spent on coffee per week, and you've got some data on growth of coffee shops in a particular uh, location, you could put that into a graph and there might be some kind of correlation statistically about the amount being spent and the amount of coffee shops. But that doesn't necessarily mean Mm -hmm. there's any kind of causal effect going on there. Just because two things are increasing doesn't mean that one is having effect on the other. However, there are Mm -hmm. cases where the amount being spent on coffee area and the number of coffee shops going up is likely to have a a relationship and that's this idea Mm -hmm. you know there's an association between these two types of data but it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a cause and effect I think if you look at some of the more um, the biological and chemical sciences related to uh, the research around coffee and particularly the the medical side of you know perhaps the benefits of coffee and things like that you often see different types of articles coming out one saying you know drinking more coffee has benefits other research will come out saying perhaps it's not quite so clear and that's because they're, they're using different data and they've got lots of different patterns going on in their data but they can't necessarily prove that those two pieces of data are linked. Yeah the idea of association not being a cause relationship can be, um, I think, surprising or confusing for those of us first getting into looking at these relationships. And the famous example that I remember, at least in my head, was the idea that uh, there was some research done in the US where they found obesity and having breakfast were inversely related. So that... um, you know, people who had breakfast seemed to not have issues with weight. Yeah. And, <laughs> and somebody brought up the idea of, well, if athletes are working out, wouldn't they eat more breakfast? The idea of, well, it could be that, you know, you're eating more breakfast because you are already in a place, right? But there were a lot of media papers trying to push the idea that if you eat breakfast, um, you will avoid um, health issues with your weight. And so... sure. 
And and again, um, it depends on what sample of people were they looking at. Was it a representative yeah. sample of the population? Did it include athletes? Did it, you know, and, and did they break down their data looking at different demographic groups? Those kind of things, because then you might get very different patterns. I now have a question specific to your studies. We talked a little bit about how it might look different, you know, in the social sciences versus something like a biological science or, or what have you. Sure. Can you give examples of maybe something you might see studied in biology and how that might compare to a study that you've done, sort of like a method by method kind of way? So in terms of the research that I do, in terms of methods and of what I'm looking at is I'm trying to understand how and why the business and the coffee industry grows and why it does so in different places in different ways. And to do that, I tend to talk to people. So I do a lot of interviews and and through that, I gather a lot of qualitative data. So I do the interviews and then get them transcribed and then I'll code them looking for themes and ideas and kind of answers to my research questions based on Mm, what I've got from the people that I've spoken to. Sometimes I will use a survey as well, um, which I've done in some recent research when I'm trying to get um, access more people, try and get a larger sample of data that I can't physically do by going to talk to people one by one. And also in terms of traveling around the world to, to get that data, sometimes it's quicker to do a survey. So they'd be my kind of two primary research methods. But then I'll sometimes complement that with you know, if I do go somewhere, I can use photography as a visual form of data collection mm, to try and yeah. look at, at what's going on. I mean, that's a pretty standard social science kind of group of methods that you could use in geography or business or management or any of those. But if you had someone in the sciences mentioned, you know, biology, chemistry, they're probably more likely to run experiments. They're going to want to, again, you know, we mentioned about having hypothesis. They're going to have a very different approach to what they want to find out. They may much more likely to have a quantitative approach to what they want to find. They want the numbers they want the you know mm-hmm. uh, quantitative evidence of their findings and equally if you go over to a historian we'll go and look at archives um, we'll have a different approach to how they try and collect their data i think people who are not in research tend to expect causality to be a, the main point of research yeah. what's the cause of something have you experienced that in your research or people sort of demanding the why of things and yeah. that question's asked i mean yeah the question of why things are happening is asked a lot i mean Something that's come up in my research has been, well, why have we had this growth of coffee shops over the last kind of decade? Why have people been shifting their coffee consumption to wanting more specialty coffee, for example? I think it's partly in human nature to want to understand why things are happening. But I think research can be broader than that to think about, okay, a bit about why things are happening but I'm also interested in the impact it has on certain people so I'm interested in if we're going to have a broader spread of coffee shops in a particular area of a city what's that going to do to the communities there what impact is that going to have on the labor market what impact is Mm. that going to have on various parts of the supply chain so I think why certain things happen is a really important part of research but I actually think there are other elements to research that are important to you know thinking about the, the broader impact of what's going on in the world well my next question is Related to sustainability, and I say that, um, you know, I use the word sustainability broadly as well. Um, yep. So uh, <laughs> it's not a, not as a means or a cop out to say like, um, you know, it doesn't mean anything because it certainly does. Um, but as an industry facing serious challenges in sustainability, um, the, the main ones I can think of would be economic and um well, we have the issue of environmental sustainability as well with climate. Sure. Yeah. Why, why might it be important for us, for our listeners and coffee lovers globally, to have a grasp of the value of the research 
um, that there is, but more specifically, let's talk about your research and and why is it important um, that it's executed well and and that we interpret this um, properly um, as well. Sorry, that question <laughs> ended up being like. 10 minutes long I don't know why (laughs) no it's fine no it's fine and it's a really important question so sustainability is one of these kind of broad kind of topics that encompasses so many different things and actually what we have been doing recently in a research project is to look at what are the sustainability risks to coffee supply chains we've been trying to map these specifically for um, a supply chain between Indonesia and the UK Um, Mm. and it's actually such a, a really complex topic that there are loads of different elements. And it's important for people to understand that there are lots of different elements and different parts of the coffee supply chain and actually how they're all connected. And people who are interested in coffee at any stage of the supply chain can have an impact on some of these issues related to sustainability, whether it's consumer at the consumer end, thinking about the quality of the coffee that you're you're buying and you're drinking and ensuring that, uh, that you're you know trying to get quality coffee and supporting businesses that have those kind of sustainable um, you know, agendas. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to understand that there are lots of other stakeholders involved and a lot of the issues and challenges the industry faces are not simple to solve. Um, I mean, even in the, the news yesterday, I think it was, there was a, an article about how they found more coffee berry borer um, beetles in Hawaii. And, you know, mm. the spread of that, yeah. uh, you know, pests and diseases is a real sustainability challenge for the industry. And, and having an understanding of why that might mean in some cases prices of coffee changes. Um, whenever I talk to consumers, they're often quite confused about why coffee can be really cheap in some places and really expensive for other types of coffee in different places and trying to explain about you know different coffee types and different mm-hmm. coffee qualities and different origins and how that can have you know an impact um is really important so it's a bit of a long answer but i think it's really important for people to understand that the coffee industry is really complex it has loads of different people involved loads of different processes involved and if you can start to understand a little bit of what's going on you can also start to understand how you know, we can all have an impact to try and support that industry moving forward. Mm-hmm. There's so many things it encompasses. And sometimes for people, you know, oh, climate change, that's just such a big issue. How am I ever going to have a, an impact? Why, mm-hmm. you know, what can I do about it? It's it's too big. Well, actually, if you break it down and understand what the process is involved, it can help if you can think about the kind of actions that you can take on a daily basis that might have a, a small impact day to day, but overall might have a larger impact globally. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. It, is, it is a really complex topic and and you know, as I said, we're doing this piece of research in the minute, trying to, to look at all the, the, the different sustainability risks and we're trying to create uh, models to to look at how if we change some of those risks, what might happen to coffee mm. production and things like that. And actually, it's, it's yeah. there's so many different variables. It's quite quite challenging. But if we break those down and try and highlight what the different ones are, then it, it might be that different teams of researchers can look at different ones of those in more detail. And I was going to ask you, what are you working on? Um, and also attached to that question how can our listeners be a part of what you're doing? There's kind of three angles to my research at the minute. So one is I'm trying to look at what impact COVID-19 is having on coffee shop consumption and coffee shops. So I'm doing a bit of kind of rapid research on that based on what's happening at the minute. But then kind of longer term pieces of research that I've been doing. One is around 
coffee shops in the circular economy. So looking at how coffee shops can be more sustainable, how they can try and incorporate circular economy practices into their activities and how that can help them be more sustainable. And then the third one is the one I've mentioned before. We've been trying to map and look at the impact of different sustainability risks on coffee supply chains between Indonesia and the UK uh, specifically. Mm, And then in terms of finding out about that, so I have a research blog, which I try and write on as regularly as possible, cafespaces.wordpress.com. And on there, I try and put links to sort of bits and pieces that I write as I go along. Um, I just had a piece of work, a piece of writing put in the conversation. But I'll also then, if I have journal articles, I will put a piece on there to say, look, you can find the research here. Or if I have a new project, I'll put a bit about that. So that's kind of like a dialogue I have that people can find out about what I'm doing and where they can read more if they want to. So the main takeaway really is research takes time and it's really rewarding if people actually read it and engage with it. Um, you know, every now and again, we get an email or uh, about a piece of research we've done or, or get in touch. And it's actually really rewarding to know that someone has read a piece of work that we've, we've put all our heart and soul into. So that's, um, mm. that's one thing. And then in terms of advice um, I had from a, a line manager a few years ago, who said that, you know, you're never going to complete everything you want to do on a daily basis. So all you can do is to chip away at it. And I think, you know, given all the challenges that the world's facing this year, we can't do everything, but we can just try and do little bits each day, try and keep ourselves going. Dr. Jonathan Morris has been called the coffee historian and is widely known in the coffee sector for his research around coffee history and his book, Coffee, A Global History. This is not his first rodeo on the podcast, but this time we dive deep into the world of what makes or breaks good historical research and how we should think of research more broadly. So, I mean, I guess I think of myself as a researcher, first and foremost, I'm a historian. Historians to write history have to do research. Our definition of research obviously would vary from other disciplines, but I mean, in my case, and in the case of history, we would start by always thinking about the sources that we would want to use, mostly archival sources, what we would call primary documentation. So rather than looking at other people's accounts or other people's interpretations, we try to go back to primary historical data. And that, in a sense, is the essence of what historical research is about. So if you were studying for a research doctorate, for example, you would be examined on whether or not your sources, your primary source base was sufficient and I guess credible in order to sustain the thesis that you were presenting. So we would be looking at the question of whether or not your sources in fact supported your research and your research would be into those sources. So there's a lot of ways that we then think about, are these the right sources? How do we criticize those sources? How have those sources come about? If we think about um, Mm -hmm. the kind of documents that we might see and we then integrate that research with yes other people's writing what we might call the historiography the secondary literature but that's the sort of the primary distinction one of the things that interesting you asked me about research in my career is that i would say when i started and probably when most people start doing research they are very focused on that kind of research very focused on this detailed, usually archival primary source material. As we work through our careers as historians, we also become, I think, broader in our approach, both to our research and to 
our scope, the kind of questions that we ask ourselves, the bigger things. So my primary first project, my PhD project, was a, a project which was about shopkeeping in Milan from 1885 to 1905. And it was based on two main sources, really. Uh, one was a newspaper produced for shopkeepers, of which I read every edition for 20 plus years. And the other was a series of commercial guides to the city of Milan, which every year were produced showing the location of every shop. And I worked those sources very sure. intensively, yeah. so you can see how they're primary sources. With my coffee research, which I guess we will go on to talk about, I would say I've used a much wider array of sources and I've integrated much more secondary and primary research together to try and uh, sort of produce that research uh, and ask much broader questions. There is a huge emphasis on the source, the thing that you start with, yeah. and then maybe the things that you bring in, or I say things, I should say data or information that you bring in, and then maybe some supplemental things that aren't as you'd said primary yeah. to help mold the picture, I guess, in the realm of uh, historical research? Yeah, I think one of the things that we are always, uh, that's always fundamental for historical research is understanding a broader context, a broader picture. So you fit in your kind of primary data sources and your prime your primary focus has to be fitted into a broader context. So if we switch that into, I was talking with somebody today about coffee in Vietnam. So we could talk about the rise of coffee production in Vietnam, and we could talk technically about that. But as historians, we'd also want to talk about, well, who were the people producing the coffee? And then what was the context for the whole policy, the policy in Vietnam of basically settling peasants from what was North Vietnam into those central highlands, which had been very contested during the war, to create a stable population and giving them as their incentive for being there, growing coffee as the kind of the direction of the state. So if you see what I mean, that there's a much broader context there, which is about Vietnam, its politics, indeed about the whole of the Cold War, into mm -hmm. which we situate what we actually understand about coffee and why there's this big rise of production in Vietnam. Okay, yeah, there's uh, almost what seems to be this idea of nodes, like working off of... Yeah. A, maybe a, a a broad picture you can kind of like dig into yeah. or or cross off. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we would we would both be looking at the broad picture and then situating. I think what we would see not so much as hypothesis. What we tend to do is we think about research questions, and we might start with those okay. questions on the basis that we have some ideas or something that interests us, and we gradually build out a set of questions around that. We place those in in our context, and then we try and answer those questions. So you mentioned it's not like a hypothesis. It's not maybe asking the question or saying rather, "I think this will happen." Well, obviously, because it already happened. Yeah. <laughs> but are the questions more around why did it happen? Since I guess we have we mostly have the what when it comes to historical. They are mostly. I think our questions are mostly about why. In terms of having the what, that the however isn't necessarily always the case because history has progressively broadened its focus. Again, to talk about my research in coffee, a lot of my research in coffee, I wouldn't say that it was, you know, there isn't 
so much archival data about coffee. A lot of what I did with coffee was go and actually create an archive by assembling mm, things, mm -hmm. whether they were written things. A lot of them were oral interviews, almost like doing this, but using them as primary documentation, but being critical of that documentation. In other words, not just taking what somebody says as that's our history. But I guess what I'm trying yeah. to drive at here is that we've we've ever extended the field of what history can deal with. So if you'd been thinking about history 50 years ago, most people were thinking about political history or and you know studying that through the records of parliament or whatever, or government studying them through the national archives. Now we have a much, much broader understanding of what we think history to be. So in that sense, we also have to go out and look for the what to create those those mm. data sources that we then ask the why of. What is research and what do you think the point of it is in your context? Wow, that's such a good question based on, you know, I suppose the first thing about research is I think research, and this is also quite a difficult answer to give, research yeah. is, I would say, unbiased investigation by which I mean when you start the investigation, you are open to whatever comes out of that investigation. So you, you don't mm. go in with a predisposition to find a certain outcome. Otherwise, you effectively find the outcome that you, you, you'd already thought of. Research is function because of that, because it's based on a discipline that enables investigation, is to uncover, to interpret, to make a available a sense and an ability to engage with topics in the context of history that means to engage with our past because obviously our past is separate from our present it's something we carry with us as, as part of our heritage it influences what we do in the present as you and i often talk about but it is something that i think we research because it tells us something about ourselves and something about the way where we have come from the way that we live. What I think is important to convey about research is it is something different from simple speculation, that it has an evidence base that is judged on its evidence base, that it needs to be robust in that sense. Um, mm. The problem or the, the difference, I would say, as we shade between those various disciplines, between like a discipline like history and, say, a, a scientific research, whereas a, a pure science research, we're looking at reproducibility in terms of, you know, can we produce a universal law? Can we, when we eliminate everything else, find something that causes something we have? We, We'll talk about causation in a historical context in a while, but I mean, in scientific mm -hmm. context, that's a in, in a hard science context. That's the way that we we think about it. Obviously, history doesn't function in that way, and in essence, history doesn't really postulate that we could interpret in that way because, by the very fact we know history, that changes the context in which we experience events. Does that makes sense. Do you mm. see what I mean? We can't we just, we, you know, <laughs> that's a lot to chew it's, on. It's a lot to chew on. I've had a lot of years of chewing on it, but but in essence, yeah. what it means is, you know, when someone says, "Well, will history tell us the future?" The answer is no, because the future is influenced by history. So whatever situation right. was in was present in the past, we can't use that situation alone to determine what will happen today, because 
by definition of knowing about that situation, that's also changed our understandings of things. Does that make sense? I, yeah, for me, it's it's tempting to jump into my favorite genre, subgenre of sci-fi, which is like the the timey-wimey stuff, you know, like going into the past. Uh-huh. And, yeah. But we're not going to go there. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears <laughs> for this at some you... point, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What are the components of research? So we talked about primary and sort of these like uh, secondary and tertiary um, sources. What other components are there to research? Those are the elements of documentation, aren't they? So the other, Mm. I think perhaps the most important thing that we say in history is about critical engagement. It's about not just saying, okay, I've got a document here that says so-and-so did this, or someone's written that the prime minister writes that he did this action because of this. That sounds like that's perfect evidence, but it's not really because there's always a reason why the prime minister wrote that, for which audience Mm -hmm. he was writing that, why he's presenting that particular element of a decision, but maybe not another one. So any document itself has to be thought of critically any piece of evidence has to be thought of critically in that sense of how do I actually see how this document or this piece of evidence was created, how's it being being used. We really have to engage in that level. We have to think about what we're doing there. Mm-hmm. That's very much part of history's research in particular very much adopts that approach. And the same applies through each of those three phases that you're talking about. It applies also to our reading of of the secondary literature, and it applies to that kind of tertiary gathering and the tertiary context elements that we're talking about, that we have to to Mm. think critically about that. We, at the same time, I think particularly in history, we have to think, I don't like the idea of outside the box, but we have to be prepared to jump outside the uh, blinkers, as it were. Outside the blinkers? Uh, so I don't know if the, the uh, blinkers are a term in the States. Uh, you know the things you put on horses to make sure the horse only looks ahead? So the idea of sort of like blind spots. Yeah, is... exactly. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like you touched too, maybe not directly, on the idea of motivation. Yeah. So like an author of some primary source or, or a source that you're using, my question would be like, the motivation probably plays a role? In... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really complex to to critique and to judge and and sounds like a tough cookie to me. Yeah, but. it is. And that's how history is as as well. That's why history has no definitive answer, as it were. It has a set, you know, I mean, historians are forever debating things. We are forever criticizing and critiquing other people's critiques, etc. We mm-hmm. and and that is the way the research progresses. I have a a very simplistic mantra, which is in the history, it's impossible to necessarily be right, but it's possible to be wrong. And that's kind of the frustration Mm. of the discipline. Yeah. What are clues to bad research? So we kind of talked about the right ways to do things or the proper ways to do Mm -hmm. things. And you just said it's possible to be wrong. So how do we know we're looking at bad research? Because, you know, the media will publish all kinds of things. Yeah. So how do, how can we know? Okay, so what we would do as historians is move backwards through that. So go through the things that we've talked about and each one of those, you can see the bad research coming in very quickly. 
bad research, it, it would be uncritical about its source. So it would just simply say, I've discovered this document, so this proves, or this person once said, I think I had a discussion with you on one of our previous broadcasts, and we talked about how do we know when the first coffee was? Who And, and oh, many yeah. people have sort mm -hmm. of asked the question, you know, what's the first cup of coffee ever drunk? To which the answer is incredibly complex, because actually, you know, that, that goes back to define your define your cup of coffee but it also mm -hmm. has a lot to do with well what is what what would be the appropriate evidence how far credit do we give it so i'm thinking here that there's this thing about the avicenna who's a um, big kind of um well a polymath really uh from arabia who wrote lots of manuscripts and wrote one about herbs and in one of these there's a reference to something that the name sounds a bit like the Arabic name for coffee. Hmm. Now, that's all there is, really. There's a little description of it. The description, frankly, is very difficult to pass and, to my mind, doesn't immediately say coffee. Could be. I think it, it's uh, buncham mm -hmm. is, is what it's called. Could be, but it really doesn't give enough. And then we've got nothing yeah. for at least 400 years. So some people would like to say that on the basis of Avicenna, we can say that coffee actually dates to 1000 rather than 1400, which is when we have some, some better records. Historians mm, okay. as professionals won't accept that. Yeah, that's oh. bad research because really what that is, is not understanding Avicenna, not putting that in a context, not thinking critically about, well, how come we haven't got all the rest of this stuff? How accurate can yeah. this really be? So that's kind of one of those differences. And there are similar things with quite a lot of those coffee myths that we've talked about. We've talked about coffee myths where actually when you go back to the records, you mm -hmm. can't find, you can find plenty of stories, but you can't find any primary evidence for them. I mean, Caldi would be a great one, which is clearly a myth. Um, mm -hmm. But these are sort of, I, I guess, the obvious things. In terms of where we are now, when we look at sort of historical texts, it's looking at texts which don't reference where they got their evidence. So simply tell you something that really doesn't help because that's assertion without evidence. There's a different sort of test for historians. Whereas we talked about science being about ultimately can, you know, can this be reproduced and can someone else follow what I did and get the same result. Uh, in history, it's can someone else follow the same research path? That's why okay. we have all those footnotes and those, you know, those things that look boring, but are actually there so that if you tomorrow decide to take my text and check it, you could actually do so. Yeah, I've, it's like breadcrumbs yeah. to follow the same. Yeah, exactly. So maybe you pick up a breadcrumb and you go, oh, no way, This why is this here? So yeah. there could be a way to detect... Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, absolutely. And as soon as you do that, you often find that there are things that don't really make sense. So, for example, I, I'm certainly take with a pinch of salt something that purely refers to a company website as a proof of an element where a company website says we were the first to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, are there a lot of them. Um, but if you write that as history yeah. and all you have is your references, the website, and particularly ones which actually, you know, make some sort of outlandish claims, then I don't think you've really done good research. Or at least you haven't yeah. presented well the research that you've done. I wonder if in the world of history, so if we hear something that sounds, a claim that sounds outlandish, 
if the immediate feeling or response is that sounds outlandish, then we probably can start on that side of the fence yeah. and then work to prove it otherwise. Like, you know, to, to I guess, get rid of our uncertainty if we're so unsure kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that is what you need to do is to look at really where does that claim come from? How real can that claim be stood up? How effectively can it be stood up? So I guess, too, on the on the flip side, there's maybe this idea. I was just thinking of this as, we, as you were talking about. We talked about coffee myths. Everybody wants to claim in the first this or that. And in coffee history, the most ultimate claim would be something like the original coffee plant yeah. or the originally coffee this. Now, I would guess on the opposite side of bad research or bad conclusions, rather, because I guess this is more about making conclusions, interpreting... Yeah. We could say where the where separate disciplines, uh, how do you say it? What is it? Corroborate. Yeah. They cor- corroborate one another. So say uh, coffee history or, or you come across something and you say, it seems like I have this evidence that the first coffee plant was this date. Yeah. And then you have something like coffee genetics yeah. or, or, you know, co- science and, and coffee plant genetics, where I think they can basically trace it back to origins. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not totally certain. So if those two things corroborate one another, then it's like, this is most likely the case. That's right. So this. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything like that in. In coffee history? In, um, yeah. There are potentially things like that. There's an interesting thing right now we know about the um, the discovery of sort of what appears to be a, a, a subspecies of coffee in Yemen that actually might be Yemeni. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm not fully mm-hmm. informed about that yet, but I mean that that is a very interesting piece of research from the perspective of a coffee historian that obviously raises a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. There are interesting things about tracing, which can be done more more recently, I guess. Those genetics of the varietals that we're beginning to discover and the sub-varietals that are coming to the fore. So uh, even geisha, for example, actually looking at the records of geisha and when we first talk about it and corresponding those to the genetic evidence that we might be able to require. I'm doing some Mm -hmm. research on a, on a different thing where it's, you know, archaeologists are trying to trace coffee beans at the moment. We can look at the material evidence that they create around the beans, put that in a historical context. What do we know about the history of the time? And they, again, might be able to do some genetics work or sort of diagnostic work, I guess, on the sort of the, the origins mm-hmm. of those beans. So there are ways that those overlap very, very effectively, in fact. All right, let's jump into a uh, really, hopefully not convoluted, but it can quickly become convoluted. The conversation of correlation, causation, um, cause and effect. Yeah. How does this apply in the scope of history, uh, historical research? So it's a really interesting conversation because... It applies a lot in the sense of being careful about causation, correlation, and association because history doesn't really have a, you don't reach a defining account. So to that extent, there is always some issue about causation and about how we make that causation link. 
There are some obvious examples which apply across all science. I think of the failure to distinguish between causation and correlation would apply equally in history in the sense that, you, you know, you can see two phenomena that occur at the same time. This doesn't mean that they're linked phenomena or that they're causal mm -hmm. phenomena. On the other hand, historians possibly have more, I don't want to say creativity, but more, more breadth or scope for finding ways of linking phenomena or creating causation, precisely because we are proposing readings of what we see. We can't necessarily produce a definitive outcome, but we can, as we said before, and this is my point about, you know, it's difficult to be definitively right, but you can be wrong. It's fairly easy mm -hmm. to, or it, it, you know, it will happen that something simply becomes untenable as more evidence is uncovered. So there is a potential for arguing that what was presented as causation is not or that something that was presented as correlation actually is connection and the other thing is of course that when we go back to what i said about context and understandings of context that also applies in the way that we think about cultures and the way that cultures themselves perceive their surroundings their activities so in a way but if a belief is held for example that actually in itself mm. becomes part of a causation. Oh, it, yeah. that, do you see what I mean there? I think yeah. so. I, I think I'm on the, the fringe of understanding. <laughs> I'm, I immediately go to like little kids or maybe little brothers and one hits the other. And the story that you get later is, you know, hey, Charlie bit me or something, yeah. right? Like the idea that Charlie bit me and we could say, you know, why did Charlie bite you? And the kid could say, from his perspective, there's some reason yeah. Charlie bit yeah. him. Um, from the kid's reason, there's a whole nother reason. And then from, say, I guess a parent maybe in this environment, it, the parent has to discern how to move forward with some level of correction. Yeah. So how would, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like yeah. proposing this as an example. How would I understand the difference in this example between something like association, which is not uh, correlation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so association. Yeah. yeah. I'll just let you unravel. Yeah. I'm going to try see if I can find a, a, a suitable one. So causation, but not, I'm drifting a little bit here, but uh, let's think about something very no, simple. So we can talk about a context in which there is rising consumption of coffee and maybe in that context there's also expansion of cities let's say now okay there is a good argument to say that that's causation in the sense so that of, what's causing what okay so the expansion yeah. the growth of the cities can be causing the rise of uh consumption of coffee okay uh because blah 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 insert your you know your historian would insert their something well let's say they make that observation then we would actually have to look at mm -hmm. causation why would that create rising consumption of coffee as opposed to association the two things happen at the same time um mm -hmm. is there something that makes cities more prone to coffee consumption uh, and as it happens as a historian i tend to think that there is because there's a there's a different kind of work and a different kind of concept of time in a city than there is in the countryside. Uh, and there's a whole different set mm, of contexts okay. in which you might consume coffee 
in not least to how you actually consume meals, etc., etc. But you could, you know, somebody might rebuff me and say that's an association and I've missed something key there. Um, okay. And also that that's a correlation but not a causation. And that the causation right. really is actually, well, we had... Um, the development of a system that marketed more coffee or we had a development of a system that produced coffee at a lower price. And of course, the real problem for the historian, and this is the distinguishing thing again, is contextually, all of that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a way, yeah. the best we can do is come up with the context and then try as hard as we can to work out where there could be cause and where there is context. This, is this helping or getting and, things and even could, worse yeah. for you? But no, I, I, that's no. how that's that's the kind of problem that I face in trying to do that, and I, and that like becomes it. important because, for example, I do think, personally speaking, I do actually think coffee is an urban drink. There's certainly, in historical terms, there's a good sense for saying that's a correlation, and we can come up with some reasons why that might be. A causation i'm pretty confident on the correlation um mm -hmm. moving to the causation i'm probably pushing to find reasons for causation i'm never going to find a definitive argument i suspect mm -hmm. the definitive proof but i think that there are good arguments for that in terms of the function of coffee socially the function of coffee within the family the the different ways in which we consume and drink in a city as opposed to in a rural setting because of the different natures of the workplace, the different natures of what we undertake. So actually, I think the argument is fairly strong. But then you might want to argue against me and say, but there are some areas of the world where we have cities and we have no coffee consumption. And there, obviously, we have a different mm -hmm. set of contexts and a different set of associations. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that we spend our time trying to pull apart as historians. And that, again, is going to be a different thing, I think, from deciding whether, you know, the agent uh, in, in a chemical reaction is this or that or how is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how we're seeing it. So it is it is a very important element for us. It is, again, another one where. Almost the historian's creativity and ability and sensitivity come into it because they they themselves have to sort of decide how to go down that route and then whether they can actually evidence and prove it. Yeah, it comes back to that uh, critiquing like every exactly. step of the way as you're yeah. going, leaving breadcrumbs, etc. Yeah. yeah, I love that conversation, I think, in the context of history, of cause and effect, because it's such a wonderful thing and when i say wonderful i mean just like uh grand thing to consider it, it's cool to know that there are methods a scientific or research approach to being able to understand cause and effect in our world from a historical perspective i think we need to be absolutely clear that so there is a scientific approach and there is a rigorous research approach but what it won't okay. do is give us such a definitive outcome as, as we might expect in other areas of science got it Perfect. Thank you for clarifying. No worries. We've covered a lot here. We could get caught up in cause and effect, yep. right? We could get caught up in, well, we just have to know, did this cause this? Or or we just have to know who was the first this? Or maybe that's not the same mm -hmm. as cause. Um, but 
is that even the point of the research? You see, there's a there's a thing here, Jesse, which actually I would probably take us another whole a whole podcast, which is there's research and then there's the writing and presentation of that research. And that's okay. again where history uh, in particular is quite different from publishing your scientific paper because there's a whole line here about not just being interested in cause and effect, but being interested in how we present and interpret that in that wider context, how we make that accessible and how we use that for understanding. So all of those things come in in a way that, that that's far beyond that simpler point. And so some of those outcomes of research, the kind of books that I would hope to write, for example, are as much, I mean, they're not just about cause and effect, they're about presenting a whole set of contexts, about presenting narratives, pictures that people can engage with, can follow through, can can actually mm -hmm. somehow, I suppose, engage in a dialogue with the past. To me, research is much bigger than, than the cause-effect thing. The other thing that I wanted to say was you also have to look at, and I think this is important, when you, when you put it in that context, I think that thing about what was the first, which is always, we said it's a question that's so often asked. Actually, for me, when I was working on coffee history, when I'm working on it now, I'm less interested in that than what was the most influential. So let me give you an example mm, of that. Yeah. We can talk about the history of espresso. And boy, can we talk about the history of espresso. Um, and there's this, what was the first espresso machine is this huge question. And there are uh, examples. So we can talk about a guy called Angelo Moriondo because he produced a patent for creating a machine that used pressure brewing in Italy in the 1880s. We can talk about the earlier versions of using pressure to brew coffee to some extent. So Edouard Loisil, who produced this amazing hydrostatic pressure coffee brewing machine for the Paris Great Exhibition of 18, I think, 51, 61, maybe. But what's the first espresso machine that actually makes an impact on the world? It's the first one that goes into commercial production, which is that uh, the Pavoni Ideali, uh, the Pavoni mm. Ideali, 1905, really. There are lots of things, again, about, you know, which, which is the first, who did the first semi-automatic, who did the first, the that or the other. But if we actually look at what are the machines that really transform our world, they're very not, often not the first. Instant coffee would mm. be another example. There's instant coffee in the sense of soluble coffee products produced from the turn of the 20th century. There's a brand of soluble coffee that's actually widely distributed amongst American troops in the First World War. But what's the instant coffee that really defines instant coffee? That What's the coffee that really changes it? It's Nescafe and uh, that changes mm. our world in ways that those previous examples really don't. So to me as a historian, what's the most important elements of the story is often not what might seem to be, well, let's just go and find the first. It's actually, let's find the most important and the most influential and let's understand why it's important. So for me, mm. going back to espresso, um, I actually think in a way the most important machine 
is probably the Faena 61. Why? Because it actually is the machine that makes the Italian coffee. It, it kind of fits the Italian coffee bar and what creates the Italian coffee bar, even though we've had plenty of espresso machines before there, because of the way it's configured, mm -hmm. it enables you to run a coffee bar in a certain way that, that fits with um, the development and the context of what's going on in Italy to create a big boom in, in the coffee bar. Um, mm. Now, I, th I think I've probably wandered quite a long way from your original question, which is beginning to <laughs> escape me. But those are the sort of issues that I think research is important for and helps yeah. us understand and helps us understand in a different way. Yeah, I feel like I asked a sort of weak question and I got myself a much stronger answer to better questions. So I'm thankful for the... Uh, well, I th that's that the historical like method of the ramble. <laughs> start start <laughs> and go through yeah. associated thinking um but yeah nice. i think that's that's yeah. that's sort of what, how i feel about it why might it be important for our listeners and coffee lovers around the world to have a grasp of the value of historical research in coffee and how it's executed and how it's interpreted so I, I'd like to start it a slightly different way than normal by sort of saying, okay, well, let's yeah. think about sustainability and what we mean about sustainability. I kind of feel that sustainability is about actually being able to say, well, the, the way that we produce this coffee today, we'll be able to produce this coffee in 10, in 50 years time without having detracted if we, if, uh, from our ability to do so over the interim period. So that's kind of about environmental sustainability. That's about economic sustainability. It's about social sustainability. All of those things come together in that question. You know, could, if we went on doing this the same mm -hmm. way, would right. we still be able to, you know, and another element within that is actually understanding the heritage of the coffee and the meaning of the coffee. So the heritage in terms of where it's come from, in terms of, the ways that the, that this relates to where the coffee is produced, the meaning in terms of the meaning that we attach to coffee, the meanings that we that we create around coffee, and for all of those things, I think you need to look at history. There's some very specific elements of those sustainability questions where history also plays a key role. Uh, one is about understanding the reasons why we have a coffee chain for want of a better word but I, I guess a coffee system that looks the way that it does most of those reasons have been shaped by history if we use history as a way to address those questions it shows us something that i've i've said to you before which is that we've moved towards a system in which for almost the past hundred years or so what shifts the system or rebalances the system is catastrophe so we, we have a system in which coffee continually has overproduced in terms of the too much coffee chasing too little market and then had a market correction. But the market correction has been delivered via catastrophe, catastrophes being the Brazilian frost or a war sort of breaking up the trade or coffee rust, you know, those kinds of things. So I would use history to help me understand why we could have a headline that says, coffee harvest is good this year and therefore coffee farmers will do badly in other words where hmm. where we have a situation in which all of the agronomic situations are favorable 
And precisely because they are, that's going to cause a crisis for coffee farmers, which kind of feels like, you know, I know that sounds simple economics, but it's very poor economics that we've achieved that. History helps us understand how we got into a situation where, in essence, at the moment, my, my interpretation of where, where we are is, for most of the 20th and early 21st century, we've had a situation where we've had too much coffee in the sense that there's been an excess of coffee supply over coffee demand, and that has led to price plunges. We've tried to manufacture, as we can again see through history, various ways of uh, of governance, yeah, quotas exactly, and to try and manage those, which, which have not succeeded. And that again helps us to understand, well, why not? Because that looks like a simple solution. The corrections to that and the way that, that coffee has survived have almost been corrections that come with their own catastrophe, whether that is uh, the frost in Brazil, whether that is coffee rust either in the incredible coffee rust of the late 19th century or whether it's the coffee rust that hits Central and Latin America in the 2010s. These things corrected the market by taking out a lot of coffee. That doesn't seem like a best way to preserve sustainability. Right. So so that's the problem that I'm foreseeing. And that's sort of, again, I think history helps us understand that in many ways quite effectively. It takes us back to asking those fundamental questions. Doesn't this sound weird that we have to rely on bad things in order to correct our market or that when good things happen, there's good harvest? actually, we're all fearing that this means a collapse in prices. I think for me, I have such a bias going into the question of just like, well, that's just how it works. You know, that's just how supply and demand works. Yeah. But your question is going after the fundamental way at which our, I guess, economy in general works. Yeah, or the, the exactly. Global the the global economy works and why it's come to that particular pattern, particularly in, yeah. in these cases, you know. So it's one of those questions that you're right to say, you know, in economics, that's a non that's a non question. Right. right. But in history, yeah, it's act- like a why would you? Yeah, question. exactly. Yeah. But in history, it's a really quite important question. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. You're pushing the boundaries of what I have known and thought. So this is great. This, this is why part of the reason I do the podcast for my own pushing, but also for the pushing of our listeners. And OK, I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you're working on. And how can our listeners be a part? Is I'm working, having done that coffee global history, I'm trying to build out in certain areas. In particular, I'm getting more interested in coffee production. And particularly, I'm getting more and more into the history of Africa and African coffee in the relationships between Africa, the consuming countries, but also consumption in Africa. So there's the sort of things that I'm thinking about at the moment are what does an African coffee history look like to an African? What does it look like from below? In other words, there's a coffee history that tells us about the structures of the market, that tells us about the remuneration within that, that tells us about the, the output levels or whatever. But what about the actual experience of growing coffee? What about the experience and the meanings that are created around that, the heritage around coffee? And that's, I think, has something on two levels, because in the first place, and as I tried to show in the global history, 
you know, Africa comes back into the coffee world the second half of the 20th century in a big way, uh, closely linked to the growth in Robusta, though though not solely, and linked to that sort of the post-colonial period, really, where, where coffee becomes a key element for the African states in as an earner for foreign exchange. Well, that, that's interesting. But what interests me is what's the lived experience of this for African smallholders? What's their identification maybe with, with the coffee that they're growing? And mm -hmm. to convert that also into a question about Africa's consumption. Um, African consumption is very low and, it, and it's remained pretty low. We might be beginning to see some changes there. So I'm interested as to whether or not the heritage, that heritage, that coffee history, which uh, I, you know, raises all kinds of questions about how we access that, and how we document it, um, mm -hmm. whether that also influences perceptions of coffee, whether that might change it. Uh, I think I've discussed with you previously how for a long time Africans really wouldn't have even tasted their own coffee. There's a lot of stuff. You often see those stories on uh, sites about, oh, we, we went and made the farmers their own coffee so mm -hmm. but you know there are reasons why they'd never tasted that coffee uh and those reasons yeah. have to do with the organization of the state basically preventing them from doing that so how do we now see will that term can that be turned around can africans become consumers because to go back to my question to you about uh when we we're talking about sustainability what's the way of changing that balance between supply and demand well the the other way is to boost demand boost consumption, boost consumption. Yeah. but we know that that relies on perceptions and and understandings of what we're consuming you know we can't just parachute yeah. in what are the what are the ways so that that's what i mean about history being an important thing for today because history helps us understand the heritage and the thinking also into the present these conversations have left us with a lot to chew on, so I hope you've been taking mental notes at least. We'll continue in our next episode with an introduction to coffee science with respect to agricultural research, and you won't want to miss what has been called an incredibly overlooked aspect of the coffee sector. Remember to hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you find yourself listening on. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, and until next time, happy brewing.